Hello and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Text Expander and Direct Mail and Pingdom. I'm Simone Rochefort, video producer at Polygon.com. And I'm here today, very much in person and very close to Christina Warren, <laughs> senior cloud developer advocate. And uh, I'm here not in person with Brianna Wu, Democratic candidate <laughs> for Congress, who is miles away from us. And we're making up for it by sharing a pair of headphones and recording into one microphone. It's pretty, I've, I've never felt closer to you, Simone. Truly, it's very intimate. It's very wonderful. Um, so we're unfortunately <laughs> on kind of a time crunch today because Brie has to go do important things. Um, and we've had a billion technical problems. Um, but our first topic is one that I really, I want to do justice to because it's complicated. And I think there's a lot to talk about here, uh, which is the recent legislation that Australia has passed um, after the Christchurch shooting in regards to how social media platforms handle videos of violent, horrible content, which, as we know from, you know, doing this show forever, crops up on them all the time. So what Australia has done is made it potentially criminal for companies to not remove that content in a timely manner, and that could mean prison time for executives as well as financial repercussions. Uh, and this is something that is definitely the the biggest move that we've seen towards having having social media platforms bear responsibility for some of the content that is posted on them. And I think we all it, it, it's something that's really complicated to talk about because it is definitely a move towards keeping people from seeing those videos, but it may also not be the best way to go about that. And I think we all have a lot of feelings about it. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear from Brianna since, you know, you think about things from the policy perspective, because I certainly have opinions on why I don't think this is a good idea, but I would love to hear Bree's thoughts. Well, I want to really have your back on that. This is this is a bad idea. This is a bad policy. This is a, it's way too aggressive to go. And I think it's really important we examine our underlying assumptions. What is the value to the public? I think we really need to think through and say, what are we trying to do for the public? Uh, in like a Gamergate circumstance where there are death threats, rape threats, clear like intimidation of someone's life, I think there's so much clear harm there that we do need to have clear guidelines internationally about what what needs to be taken down uh, for that circumstance. And for that, uh, I don't think uh, like criminal getting the criminal justice system involved with this. I don't think it's a productive way. What I would want to do is fund the FBI, international law enforcement, to basically prosecute these kinds of direct threats that have absolutely no value to free speech. For something like the Christchurch shooting, um, I, I think clearly if Facebook is working to take this down, if Twitter is working to take this down, I think that is very clearly their judgment call. I am very unclear about what the public benefit is of throwing people in jail if they don't take down a, a mass shooting video. That seems like far too too far a line to cross. So um, I think in this kind of circumstance, what I'm worried about is basically the balkanization of the internet. If you have one set of uh, standards for Australia and then another for the United States, it's just... 
it's it's really going to get to a place where it's hard for us to free, freely share ideas. And more importantly, I think it's going to be difficult for journalists to act there. So uh, that's kind of my opinion. How do the two of you feel? Well, I agree with you, but I, I think, and and when we were talking about this earlier, Simone great, made a great point that the balkanization of the internet is already starting. You know, the EU yep. guidelines that were passed recently that now each nation has to ratify how they want to enforce it is going to potentially have really negative consequences on copyright, in my opinion, and, and creators. Um, and that's just with copyright. We already have different rules of speech in certain countries. You know, Germany has very specific rules on speech and content around things related to, you know, Nazism, that those rules don't exist other places. And so I feel like we already have some of that balkanization, but I agree with you that this makes it worse. But to me, even more than what does this say for free expression in a lot of ways, this is the antithesis of what the Internet has always been. Um, and, you know, granted, most of this has been led by the United States, but there has been this, you know, set of principles that basically says that the the platform is not responsible for the content that other people post on it. And that's like been a fundamental tenet of the Internet. Now, that being said, if you are alerted that content is illegal or breaks certain laws or is just, you know, uh, goes beyond the pale of public decency, you, I think you can make the argument that you have a responsibility to remove it, especially if it has been deemed illegal. But I don't like the idea of having like a law that criminalizes companies for not getting things offline fast enough. And I also think that it's it's completely unenforceable because the amount of content that is uploaded to YouTube every single second is beyond the capacity of human beings on the planet to monitor and to actually view. There's simply not enough people to view all the content that is being uploaded in all these services at any given time. And so what are you supposed to do when content is inevitably going to go online that is going to be bad? There's all the algorithms in the world can't stop that sort of thing. And it's untenable to say, well, you have to vet and humanly watch every piece of content before it's published. That's just not possible. I'm really curious about just the the logistics of how that would work, where if, say, that, where is the content actually literally being hosted because they have servers all around the world? The companies are based in the U.S., but the laws are being enforced in Australia. And I, I don't have, I guess, the knowledge to untangle that that knot of that 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 complexity of how this situation will actually play out in the real world. Yeah. Well, I mean I I guess what I would say and I want to be very clear before I say this, I'm not in favor of this law. I'm certainly not in favor of throwing people in jail if they don't take things down fast enough. That is it's just a terrible idea and a terrible precedent. That said, we do need to have a conversation about radicalized people getting radicalized online because this isn't just a United States problem with, you know, certain fringe elements of, you know, uh, political discourse here in the United States. We are having a radicalization problem worldwide. And it's it's so freaking challenging because open expression is so important. You know, free freedom of speech and open speech is so important. At the same time, you know, QAnon. There is a, this just came out today. Someone who is a member of QAnon is running for Congress unopposed. No, in a, in a certain in a certain district. This is this inability to tell up from down, right from left you know, true from false, it, it, 
the internet is a very potent vector for right. misinformation. And I, I guess I'm saying this is not a law I'm in favor of. At the same time, we have got to understand this like anything goes mentality, just say anything, do anything. Our world is literally starting to tear itself apart because of this. Right. I don't have a specific policy answer right now for you about what we need to do about that, but just ignoring this issue is not it's not something I feel comfortable with advocating. I'm interested in this because we've seen Australia pass other extreme laws like their yeah. their gun control law, their um law that censors video games that come into that country. And in those cases, it's been a, a situation where we can see how that works in that scenario because it, it's literally just about the country of Australia. This is a situation where it feels like it's not a, a ground where the rest of the world can look and see how that works in Australia only because it will affect the Internet at large. I mean, I agree with you um, and in terms of the the global implications, although I would say, and this kind of goes against what I've been arguing already, but it, this just occurred to me. You know, our algorithms, at least as far as we understand it, do a pretty good job of taking down Islamic terrorist content and of not promoting those pieces of content from ISIS and from, um, you know, uh, the, the remnants of al-Qaeda and things like that. Obviously, those groups do still use mainstream services and you absolutely still recruit using those channels, but it's much less common. So I do wonder, I guess, why it's been so difficult for some of this other types of extremist content to be identified the same way. Racism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was about to say that. Like, it's because if you're if you're doing something that's going to inconvenience people that are, you know, Muslim, and you know, in that kind of language, that's a very different thing than, hey, let's do this against you know the most privileged group in the history of the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in our own Congress this week, we're having the conversation of, wait a minute, is white supremacy a problem? <laughs> is it real? <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's no friggin' wonder that this kind of thing can't be seen as a threat at a high level because people just don't want to friggin' see it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And it definitely is a real problem. I would still say that regardless, and and I'm I'm not opposed to the idea of like a international human rights, like, you know, type of situation where you have a referendum or an agreed upon rules, kind of like what the UN does, you know, of, of, you know, dictating what is what is hate speech. But I also I just look at laws like this. And even though I believe the intentions are good, I both find it untenable in enforcement. And I'm personally not comfortable with the slippery slope that it's going down and and what it would mean for the entire Internet and in every other country, not just in Australia. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Christina. Something something I believe is that rather than criminal court being involved, I really think like civil court is what made automobiles safer for the public. Civil court is why, you know, your drugs are generally safe when you take them in the United States. And when it comes to like gun safety policy, I'm a big fav I'm a big fan of letting, you know, civil penalties kind of guide the way there. Uh, a really good example is uh, I want to remove indemnification of firearms if you sell a gun type that is particularly dangerous to the public and can't be locked and you know, can basically be misused, then allowing the people harmed by that to sue you in civil court. I think that's just, it feels better to me because the government's not involved with it. And I think when it comes to hate speech online, I kind of feel that 
like letting this remain in the civil court arena, letting people sue for damages. It just, I don't know. It just seems like it's less Orwellian because you don't have like a a cold government agency saying, we're going to throw you in jail if you do this, right? I like that thought. And I, I think my only pushback on that would be that it puts the onus on victims to take action, which can have financial repercussions for them, which not everyone can take on. Yeah. And I have nothing better to offer, of course. Well, I no, mean, yeah. I mean, I think that's true. Look at Hulk Hogan and Gizmodo, right? Completely. Like, there's where that was misused to destroy a news organization. So stuff is hard to fix, yeah, right? It's really what tricky. you can do, though, too, is, is if you're changing laws, you can change laws around how people can bring class action lawsuits and what types of lawsuits can be brought against corporations. And that, in a sense, would, even though it would still cost money and people would have to find people maybe to fund them, would make it easier for lawyers to to take cases, you know, maybe on a pro bono basis or on a, you know, we will take a um, certain percentage if, if we win basis. Because right now the issue is that a lot of people can't bring these lawsuits, period. So, you know, I think I agree with you that it still puts the onus on the victims. But if some of the laws were changed and people could at least bring those lawsuits, I mm-hmm. do think that there would be weirdly almost a market reaction to that that would help bring yeah. make it more possible for people to, you know, use the court system. Yeah. Yeah. And on Ugh. that note, yeah, see it's, it's it's complicated. There's a lot to talk about. Um we're going to have to put that on hold though for today and move on to our second topic after a brief message from Text Expander. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by Text Expander from our friends at Smile. Text Expander lets you quickly insert longer chunks of text with a quick search or abbreviation. The brand new Text Expander 6.5 is now available for Mac OS, and Text Expander 2.0 is available now on Windows. Both new versions of Text Expander are sporting a new visual editor for snippets. Ooh, it's even easier. The new editor makes it easier to see and edit snippet fill-ins, dates and date math, nested snippets, and more. If you already love Text Expander and like to tell people about it, uh, you can join their affiliate program to earn a little extra. Uh, if, like me, you're always looking for more ways to be a little more productive, you do need Text Expander. It'll help you along your journey of being a productive human being. It's probably more efficient than a bullet journal, even. Uh, it'll handle all your repetitive typing tasks, and it leaves you for more time to do what you do best. A good job. I know you, Rocket listeners. You're always doing a good job. You can visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. And thank you so much, Text Expander from Smile, for your support of this show and Relay FM. All right. Bree, do you want to introduce our second topic for the day? Because you kind of took point on this one. Yeah. So uh, second topic today. Dan is uh, Dan Warren is a friend of the show. You know him from Incomparable Network. You know him from Clockwise. You know him from Friendly Guy About Town He's and the best. science uh, fiction author. So I was uh, I had an event the other day at a bookstore and I looked at the bookshelves and boom, Dan Warren's new book was there. So I thought we would let our friend and Relay co-host I thought we'd let him tell you all about that book, and we pre-recorded it. So roll that beautiful tape. Hello, and welcome back to Rocket. So 
We have been covering a lot of books lately on our show, everything from Amy Webb's book. And when Relay's own Dan Morin has a science fiction book out, this is two of my favorite things in the world. It's science fiction and Dan Morin. So of course, we had to bring you on Rocket to talk about your new book. Welcome and thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is a delight to be here. So I have to tell you, I go through a lot of science fiction books. Like I, I just obsessive about it. I, I don't like most science fiction books I read. I really, really liked the 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 prequel to this. So I guess the first in your series, the Caledonian Gambit. It is if you're like a science fiction fan, it's like the best of old school Heinlein adventure. Like it's out in space. It's fun. It's this really fully realized like Cold War society. You've got a dash of like madman, like Don Draper and his hidden personality in there. <laughs> like it, this had it all. So when the sequel, when this came out, I saw it in the bookstore the other day. I'm like, we have to get Dan Warren on. Well, that is very kind of you to say. And I, I think I you know it's so nice to hear that too because I think a big part of what I focus on when I create these these stories is doing something that is fun and that is really relatable um and especially for me uh, is very character driven because I feel like a lot of uh, I mean not all science fiction but there is a big tendency in science fiction to focus on the science and the plot and while that's all great I feel like if you don't have interesting people on the stage there as well, that you lose out a little bit. And there, there are plenty of great science fiction stories I think do this really well. I mean, I know you and I are both big fans of The Expanse, mm -hmm. which I think does this fantastically. Yep. And if I could, you know, even get close to a fraction of what they're doing, you know, I feel like I have, I have succeeded to a certain extent. Well, I think you did with the, the world building and, you know, certainly really compelling characters. But... When I think about The Expanse, I think about like this, like they're, they're long books. They're really long yes, books. Yes. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I love it. But I really think Heinlein is a better, uh, it, it's a better comparison for what you're doing because you have the science right and the science is very detailed in your books, but it's a lot more of a, a personal adventure, if that makes sense to you. Like it's more about one person's character arc. And I just think, you know, sometimes I don't want to sit down with the novel and commit to reading like the 800 pages, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is what you've done. And I think it's just amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think what helps me uh, in that is that the genre I'm kind of working in, or the subgenre, I suppose, is this crossover, as you mentioned, between like sort of Cold War spy novels yep. and science fiction. And so having that Cold War thriller aspect, I think, you know, there's an element of that that helps keep it more concise. Like these aren't, I, I have dabbled a little bit in writing things that are longer and have that more epic feeling to this. And it's not to say there isn't a big stage on which all this is unfolding, but it's not a story that's necessarily epic. It is, as you said, it's really focused on these characters and their particular adventures. And so being able to do that lets me pull the camera in a little tighter and have a story that really has emotional resonance and lets you follow like these these few characters along their journey. Absolutely. So without spoiling the the first book in the series, The Caledonian Gambit, can you tell people about where this novel picks up? What are what are the big themes? Like what what are people what should people be looking for with this newest book? 
Well, and this one particularly, I really wanted to delve into one of the things that I love about the Cold War spy genre, and that's this sort of gray area of morality. Yep. So many characters that we see, you know, they're portrayed as wholly good or wholly bad. And, you know, the good guys are very clear on one side and the bad guys are very clear on the other side. And so I think a lot of people operate in that gray space in between. And for me, I wanted to spend some time investigating like, well, you know, you've got this big galaxy spanning conflict, but are the people who we are aligned with, are they necessarily the good guys? Like, do they, are their morals or are their goals really that much more altruistic or good than the side that they're fighting against? Or are they just different ideologies that are sort of clashing on this? So I, I felt like that was the whole idea of like, hey, who do you trust? How do you relate to the people who are on the opposite side of a conflict from you? How do you navigate those sometimes murky waters of morality is something I really wanted to play with. Yeah, what what I kept thinking about is, do you know uh, Rogue One and that scene mm-hmm. where uh, what's his name uh, the, the 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 former officer? Uh, what's his uh, Cassian? Uh, yes, Cassian Andor. Right, yeah. Yeah. he's there. You see him in that just horrific first scene where he mm-hmm. just murders this guy like you've never seen anything like that in Star Wars before. Right, and that's why I kept thinking about as I was reading this. Is that kind of uh, because, like, Cassian Andor, he's a good person, but he right. is very flawed in how he gets there. Yeah, um, and he's yeah. likable, but even, even in, when he does things that are fundamentally unlikable, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a tricky thing to relate to as a viewer. Right. So, so much of your world, it has to do with the actual science of, like, how you get interstellar travel to work. And I'm always curious with this. Like I know my husband, when he works on his short stories, he sits down and he will like start reading theoretical, you know, physics papers on this. Cause it's really important to him to get that science, right? What kind of research did you do to kind of figure out how your world works, how people, like how war works in this particular, <laughs> uh, vision of the future? Yeah, I, I definitely do research. I spend a lot of time reading stuff. Uh, I mean, especially online these days, because there's so many good resources for that kind of stuff online. I'm lucky enough in the science realm to have, I have a cousin who is a high school physics teacher, and I have another friend who is also a physics professor, used to teach at a uh, uh, workshop for writers, science fiction writers looking to learn more about science. And so having those resources that I can turn to when I sort of realize I'm up against the bounds of my knowledge using my meager high school physics and be like, so could I do this? Is this like a thing that I could actually say is plausible? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, that that works <laughs> this way or or no, that's that's totally wrong. You can't really do that. And And I think what helps to a certain extent is, yes, it's important to get the science right. But you also want to have a little bit of leeway to play with things, especially when you're creating drama and tension. And and I think what's nice about science is like as good as all of our physics are, there are a lot of things that we don't understand. And so being able to play around with that a little bit helps you out, right? Because you can say, well, you know, 400 years in the future, we have figured out things that we haven't figured out yet. So when I a lot of the stuff that I played with in both of these books is sort of, you know, related back into like gravity, for example. And, you know, you can talk to a lot of physicists and some of them will be like, well, we don't have a f- great idea of every detail about how <laughs> gravity works, but we know that it works and it obeys these rules. So like, yep. that's the fun is right. You want to work within a framework that is sound, but that lets you play just a little bit with things. 
Yep. So when it comes to the cover of both of these, uh, you know, the Caledonian Gambit and also the Bayern Agenda, like you've got these gorgeous spaceships on the front of it. And as someone who works with 3D, I'm always really interested in that part of it. Do you did you get to sit down and work with like uh like an artist and you're like, okay, this is why it's kind of a, a cross between the the Wing Commander Kilrathi <laughs> ships and the Millennium Falcon with these big mandibles out uh, there. Like, what's what's your process of that? Well, uh, so both it's a, a little inside baseball here. The first yep. book was published by Talos Press uh, yep. back in 2017, and then the new book is published by Angry Robots, a different publisher. So they had different processes, which was kind of an interesting experience for me going into that because the first time around, I was given a lot of input. Um, I basically, I have a blog uh, post on this somewhere, which I can I can send you a link for. But essentially, me talking about how I tried to draw like the, a cover idea. I'm a terrible <laughs> artist. I'm a really bad artist. I would love to artist. see this picture. Oh, I'll send it amazing. over. It's, it's yeah. terrible. It's very very bad. And so I, I, but they asked me like, oh, what kind? What did you have in mind for the cover? And I was like, well, uh, I was kind of taken aback because a lot of times authors who I know were like. Oh, you know, you don't get any say in this. You're lucky if you come up with a good cover. And they asked me and I was unprepared. And so I was like, well, I like spaceships a lot. And I sort of had uh, this idea of a spaceship and a wormhole, etc. And I sent in a sketch that I did just on my iPad. And they sort of took it and ran with it. But just like, it was amazing the first time I saw the art for the Caledonian Gambit because it was like they saw what was in my head and and just made a beautiful version of it. And so that was really cool. I got to do some tweaks on that and just sort of give them feedback uh, and go back and forth with them. And and that was fantastic. On the new book, um, they sort of decided they wanted to do a direction that had a very um, uh, spy espionage feeling to it, too. Which it's I, like a I'm, '60s James Bond poster. Yeah, almost. exactly. Yeah. So I I did some research on like um you know I sort of dug around on the web and looked at old spy book covers and posters and stuff that I really liked and I sent them some ideas and like color palette ideas and they sort of ran with that and came up with a, a few different things that they let me take a look at like a few different sketches and we combined a couple elements of them and I I really love the one that they came up with for the Bayern Agenda because I think it does like you said it evokes that classic 60s spy novel feel but you've got this spaceship and you've got this whole like thing that kind of looks like the uh, the volcano the inside of the volcano which is where part of this book is set um but it has those stark sort of mattish colors to it i i think it's absolutely gorgeous so it's it's a lot of fun to do with it but I, like i'm glad i have experts who work on these things and create these things because i am so bad at art <laughs> I think it's hard to go with the spaceship design no one has ever done before. So I'm looking at the front of it and I'm like, that's a new idea. That looks like nothing. Like there's, do you know what I mean? There's nothing mm-hmm. I can point to and say, "Oh, that's a that's a ripoff of a you know a Viper from right, you know, right. Battlestar Galactica." It's it's its own thing. So I think that's definitely a success. Well, great. So where where can people find your book? What's the best way to do it so you get the most money? <laughs> How can people? What's the best way for people to support your work? Well, I always advocate just supporting it in any fashion that you choose. I, I don't uh, ebook versus uh, like print book doesn't matter a lot to me. Whatever you enjoy. Well, Reading book? Is, that is great. Okay? There is an audiobook yep. is out yep. as well. If you like that, awesome. Like I, you can find all of these things on Amazon. Uh, you can find the print book as as you said up at the top of the show. You can find it in your local bookstore. Is a good chance. If not, they'll probably order it for you. Um, and you can check my website dmoren.com 
to just sort of like, I've got links to, you know, Apple Books and Barnes and Noble and all that stuff. So I always advocate supporting your local independent bookstore because they're awesome. Um, so that's always a great way to go. But if you prefer your Kindle or your iPad, knock yourself out. Yeah, I'm a bad person. I I very rarely read books. I listen to a lot of books because running for office requires so much driving. <laughs> so I do audio books. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, Nothing wrong. You do, know? Whatever, do whatever works for you. It's my thing. It's my thing. Well, thanks for coming on, Dan. And we wish you all the success with this book and looking forward to the next one. Thanks so much. Thank you for getting the deets from Dan, Bree. You're welcome. Yes. All right. We're going to have a brief message now from Direct Mail. This episode of Rocket is also brought to you by Direct Mail. Direct Mail is an easy-to-use marketing app designed exclusively for the Mac to help you create and send great-looking email newsletters. Ooh, I'm very about newsletters right now. Email marketing is still an incredibly cost-effective way to reach your customers and to grow your business. And for the past 15 years, Mac users around the world have trusted the Direct Mail app to handle all of their email marketing needs. It's designed just for the Mac, which means it's fast and easy to use, and it works great with the other apps and services that you as a Mac user already use. With Direct Mail, you can quickly and easily compose high-quality emails that look great on mobile and desktop, and after you send those out, you can get in-depth campaign reports to show you who is reading and clicking and sharing your newsletters. You can also save time by integrating with over 1,000 other apps and services on your Mac and the web. That's awesome. Oh, they also have real live human chat customer support available to answer any questions that you have. And Direct Mail is the number one top-rated email marketing app for the Mac. It has five-star reviews on the App Store, Get App, and elsewhere. And it's trusted by small businesses, nonprofits, schools, and Fortune 500 companies alike. We're really in a newsletter renaissance right now, and I'm absolutely living for it. I keep I signing up for newsletters, and I'm always so pumped to get them, more so than I am to ever look at any other social media ever. Direct Mail is free to download and get started, and listeners of this podcast can save 10% off all of the full-feature pricing plans. Head over to directmailmac.com slash rocket to check it out. That's directmailmac, as in direct, mail, M-A-I-L, mac, M-A-C, dot com slash rocket, the name of this podcast, to get 10% off when you opt for a full feature plan. Thank you so much, Direct Mail, for your support of Rocket and all of Relay FM. Okay, very fast, fast lightning dessert today. Christina, you brought to us a beautiful yes. dramatic tape from the backstage of the view yes oh. so so last week i told you all that i had bought the book ladies who punch the the basically inside story of the view and i do not regret reading that book or buying that book at all it is so good but then it got better because there was a audio uh i guess there was an exchange that was described in the book and then it turns out the audio still existed and it was shared with the world and it's pretty incredible can you oh. please describe it? So basically, in 2006, Elizabeth Hasselbeck and Barbara Walters got into an argument during a segment. And at the end of the segment, Elizabeth Hasselbeck runs off stage, basically has a, you know, she's enraged. She feels like she's been disrespected. She has a rage quit moment, basically quits the show, tells people to write about that in the New York Post. It's all captured on the <coughs> audio. During the commercial break, quits, like, 
legit quits the show and is then somehow amazingly, within four minutes, talked back to come back on stage and complete the episode where she actually was on the sofa cuddling and hugging Barbara Walters, even though it's when you hear the audio, it's you know that her adrenaline must still be pumping and that she must still be so enraged. It's kind of amazing. Unreal. I could not believe how quick it was literally because she was mad up until about two seconds. Yeah. Before the footage came back and then they were cuddling. And I I was I I thought that she was being incredibly unprofessional offstage. But the transformation was impressive to me. So this is interesting because I actually kind of completely loved Elizabeth Hasselbeck in this entire interaction. I'm not going to okay. lie. Okay, yeah, we're going to. This is we're going to disagree on this. Absolutely. This. Yes. Okay. We're going to have I a view moment here. I need to understand this. I need to understand this. Why are you Team Elizabeth here? Okay. I don't get it. So yeah. I mean, let me be clear. I think that the political position she was arguing is completely ridiculous, and I don't support that. That being said. The way I was listening to it, like Barbara was being condescending and talking down to her and whether that was the right or wrong move, it felt like an unprofessional, not cool thing to do to a colleague. It also seemed like, based on her reaction, that it had been something that had been happening for a long time. And maybe it's just that I personally, when I heard her anger and her voice, I've personally had those rage quit situations, I've actually legit done exactly what she did and then walked it back or other people have walked it back and been like, okay, you're not actually going to quit. And then I'm like, no, I'm not actually going to quit. But in the moment, you know, I've had that thing where your adrenaline is pumping, you feel disrespected, you are ranting, it just, you feel it. And I guess the reason I'm so team her is I cannot imagine being in the midst of that and then being able to get back on camera within four minutes. Like I I just can't. I cannot imagine having to go on live TV in the midst of one of those things. With perfect makeup. Yeah, like, honestly, like, that, I guess that's why I'm team her, because I I so, I guess, relate. I've been there, and I'm just like, okay, you know what? She sucks, but that was, that was really, like, she she did it. Like, basically, Bill Geddes, the producer, was like, you're a pro, and that kind of snapped her out of it, and she went back on on camera, and I don't know if I were in that moment whether it's the right or wrong kind of reaction, if I would have been able to go back on camera. I'm going to be honest and say, I don't think I would have. I guess for me, it's like, I I have been in situations that are tremendously uncomfortable on camera. I did, I'm not going to give a name, but I did a show a few weeks ago and it was kind of a right-wing show. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to do it. And the guy there is saying all this just ridiculous stuff about conservatives being censored on Twitter and all this stuff and just being really personal and nasty. And I'm just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. And I kept my cool because you're on the air and you've got to be a professional. When I watched the clip, I thought Barbara Walters was dead on to shut her down because everyone's having a perfectly polite agreement. And you know what it's like when you're in groups of all women and everyone has their own opinion and you're careful to not like let everyone have their space to talk. And like she just starts screeching and being really just over the line rude to everyone else there. And like Barbara Walters steps in and she's like, we're not going to be emotional about this. We're going to hear everyone. And I thought that was her showing leadership in that moment. And then Elizabeth Hasselbeck freaks out because she can't respect that someone else has a different view than her. So I I just thought she was so shockingly unprofessional to begin with. I just, I couldn't support her. Yeah, I mean, I I can see that read. I guess the way I saw it was that it did seem condescending the way that she was shut down. Not to say that 
I, I feel like there was a way to shut down that conversation without basically talking down to the person. Yep, and, and, that's fair. And, and I would say this, like, even though I don't agree with, with Hasselbeck's position, the way that I read it, and I think this is why I emotionally resonated with me, because I, I literally almost had like a flashback to when I've done those same types of things or when that same situation has happened to me was that it seemed like it was a pattern. Like it seemed like this was the breaking point, you know, for whatever reason. And we sometimes all have those experiences in our life where there is just something that it might be unimportant. It might even be partially our fault, but there is like a breaking point. I just can't believe that she reached that breaking point, had like a full on meltdown, like make no mistake. It's great audio to listen to. <laughs> And got back on camera. That's just stunning to me. Whether you like think that she was the worst ever or not, I just I I can't get over the fact that she got back on camera. That's just to me is like holy crap. Good discussion. Now <laughs> we had a we had a conversation disagreeing without yelling. Simone, what's your take? Done with the show. <laughs> no, no, you can't. <laughs> You're a pro. <laughs> but you actually do have to leave. I do. Looking I at do. the time. I want- uh, I know, Simone, you've got a uh, take on that. You can do that with Christina. Let me tell everyone what I'm up to this week. I am about to go on WGBH and talk about uh, basically regulating the tech industry, a uh, firmer policy on that. And on that happy note, I will see you guys next week on Rocket, where Farewell. we will be produced Farewell, less in a hurry. So talk to all of you later, okay? This episode of Rocket is also brought to you by Pingdom. How else you've been listening to this podcast? How would you know if your website had gone down? Would you know if customers couldn't click that buy now button or access your content? You might stumble across that problem by luck, baby, but that's no good. You need a system. You need something to tell you when everything is running smoothly on your site or people will be mad at you. And more importantly, you need to know when everything's not running smoothly on your site. You need Pingdom. Pingdom will let you know the moment your site goes down in whatever way is best for you. And they're smart about how they do that. They'll get the information needed to solve that issue and they'll send it to whoever needs it. It's not just like, hey, hey, your, your site's down. It's more like, hello, we've noticed a problem and here are the solutions to the problem. I've sent them to your IT expert and he's implementing them now. That's how easy it is. So, they're dedicated to making the web faster and more reliable. They use more than 70 global test servers to emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. All Pingdom needs is your URL, and they take care of the rest. Don't risk being the last to know about something on your site breaking. Start monitoring it today. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And then when you sign up, use the offer code ROCKET at checkout to get an awesome 30% off your first invoice. That's P-I-N-G-D-O-M dot com slash RelayFM right now and the offer code ROCKET. Thank you so much, Pingdom, for sponsoring this episode of Rocket and for supporting RelayFM. Goodbye, Brianna. We'll see you next week. Christina, why don't you tell me what you are doing this week? So I am about to get on a plane and uh, go to Toronto, Ontario, Canada, land of coolness, Drake's Drake's town. And uh, you know, it's still snowing up there. I know. And I, I did not pack for this. So this is a problem. So I'm flying to Toronto um, for uh, Microsoft. We have a new uh, a startup series called Create Startups. We had one in New York this week. I'm speaking at one in Toronto on Thursday. 
Then I will be home for a little bit. Next week, I'll be able to record Rocket locally. And then uh, the week after that, I'm going to Sweden because, of course, I am because last minute international trips are apparently my life now. So, yeah. I can't wait to see your pictures from Sweden. I hope you see some beautiful buildings. Yeah, me too. And and then like I'm gonna live out my my you know girl with the dragon tattoo or whatever fantasy. So I'm gonna be Rooney Mara. Is basically it's been what's so happen. many years in the making. Uh, this next week, I am going to LA again for the next the final two shoots in the series that Polygon is working on right now. The first one of those is gonna finally come out on Monday, so Woo-hoo. everyone is gonna get to see it. I will be working that day, so I'll be at a shoot. So maybe I won't see it. I don't know. No, I'll be online. I'll be very online. Um, I'm so excited for that to finally, like, be out in the world doing things. Um, And uh, other than that, I'm just continuing to prepare to take over for my boss when she goes on maternity leave. uh, So I can assume all of the, the rage and the responsibility that comes with being a boss. Basically, what you're saying is you're going to become the Barbara Walters of the Polygon uh, organization. Yes, Christina, I am. <laughs> you, you can be like condescendingly like tell everyone now. Now let's 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 not let's not do this now, Christina. I don't think it's appropriate for you to call me condescending. <laughs> Why? <laughs> oh, I love it. Try again. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll be continuing to work on my Barbara Walters impression, and hopefully next week when we're all recording normally. I will be able to do the entire episode, 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 episode as Barbara. So look forward to that, listeners. Hey, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this week's Rockets. Uh, please consider rating the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, because they're breaking up iTunes, baby. I can't yes. wait. Uh, if you haven't already, do that. Uh, share it with a friend. Talk to them about it. Thank you so much. This episode of Rockets is terminated. Terminated. Terminated.